everyone and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Strategic Dialogues, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Global Dialogue that aims to take a deep dive into pertinent issues in international relations, including geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis and international diplomacy. My name is Faith Maber, Senior Researcher at the IGD. I'm very excited about this episode as we talk about one of those paradigm-shifting topics that touches on multidimensional specialties, particularly the urbanization of warfare. And I'm very, very thrilled to have Prof. Mary Caldor and Prof. Saskia Sassen. Prof. Caldor is Professor of Global Governance and Director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit in the LSE Department of International Development where she also directs the unit's largest research project, the Conflict Research Program. In addition to her innovative work on democratization, conflict and globalization, Prof. Caldo pioneered the concept of new wars and global civil society, and her work on the practical implementation of human security has directly influenced international policy makers. We also have Prof. Saskia Sassen, who is the Robert S. Lind Professor of Sociology at Columbia University and a member of its Committee on Global Thought, which she chaired till 2015. She is a scholar of cities, immigration and states in the world economy with inequality, gendering and digitization as three key variables running through her work. In addition to the numerous honors and awards, she is the author of several books, the most recent published in 2020, which is the one we'll be focusing on in this episode, is Cities at War, Global Insecurity and Urban Resistance, co-edited with Mary Caldo, published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Prof. Caldo, Prof. Sassen, thank you so much for joining us, and I've been really, really looking forward to this discussion. <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'll, start, I'll start with you, Prof. Um, Sassen. Uh, please share with us a bit of the thinking behind the book Cities at War and why you think it's a timely addition to the growing literature on the urbanization of warfare. Uh, well, I think Mary Calder really is the innovator here and the one who has been working on these issues. And so I was very, very drawn to Mary Caldor's work, because I saw something that I hadn't quite worked on. I had lo- looked a lot at what are the major actors, as in high finance, very powerful uh, figures, you know, and how they can dominate an epoch, how they can shape the analyses and bury all kind, bury make sort of uh, eliminate from the from the scene, if you want, all kinds of other actors who are also very significant. So she, for me, it's Mary who opened up my eyes to this whole other world, which again was one that I had not been working on, but which then when I began to move into the, the kind of research that her team, that Mary Caldo's team was doing, I found extraordinarily interesting. And uh, sooner or later we'll get to it, so I'll just put it out there now. And one of the elements that captured for me this other way of looking at war was when we found out that there was between two cities that were at war. Now, the war was not launched by those cities necessarily. It was launched by other actors whose interests may not have been the interests of the locals. But anyhow, even if that once that war was opened, they actually kept transferring yogurt because one of those cities was a big maker for yogurt that was feeding also yogurt to another city. And no matter war, they kept that run, the yogurt run, as we called it, going. And that just captures something about the innards, if you want, the deep little things that happen inside a war that is rarely mentioned. Of course, think of war, we just think of the killer machines. Uh, so so that, that, that was really for, for Mary and for me, a standing uh, uh, war. Um, I, th- I think that's a very important starting point here, and I was actually just about to turn to that because when I started reading the book, I came across your usage of the metaphors you've called it of the the yogurt run, and, and here you use it in the context of uh, the city of uh, East Ghouta in in the context of Syria, 
and and I think it's interesting because here and and, and here I'll also give you a chance, um, Prof Caldo, to come in because you particularly come right at the at the onset of the book and you and both of you say that the the aim overall of the book is that you want um, us to be able to understand the city as a lens through which um, to comprehend not only contemporary violence but also um, at contemporary uh, peace. So I think let's begin there. Like um, Prof. Caldo, what what are some of the factors that pinpoint the urbanization of warfare, and what does this tell us about new wars and the, the relevance of cities and urban areas as increasingly important strategic environments? Um, yes, I, w- I want to say that just a little bit of background on the project, that I was running two major programs and we had people who were studying these cities. And so my idea was to bring in Saskia and to discuss what how we could do a comparative study of, of cities. And of course, this notion of urban capabilities, which is so important to the book, which is uh, symbolized in the yogurt run with Saskia's contribution. But also Saskia said to all of us, the city talks back. So study the city from below. So my research program was about security, but we looked at it from different aspects, rules, tools, and one of them was geographies. And it seemed to us that what was really important to think about the way that um, uh, war has become urbanized. I mean, classic wars, and of course, we're talking about classic wars, interstate wars in Europe, but we could also talk about colonial wars in Africa, tended to take place in the countryside. In fact, all the great strategists said, like Sun Yat-sen in China or Clausewitz, avoid cities. It's really impossible to fight in cities. (laughs) Actually, of course, in the Second World War, about half the fighting did take place in cities. And I think perhaps you can think of the Second World War as a sort of transitional moment. Uh, But now, and and similarly, it wasn't just open fields. It was also in the colonial wars, in the counterinsurgency wars, resistance groups found jungles and mountains the best places to hide. And I think what's happened is that cities now have become the equivalent of jungles and mountains, that actually this is where uh, contemporary wars take place. This is where people hide. Of course, there are uh, things going on in the countryside, but the vast bulk of it is urban. And why is it urban? Well, I obviously one very obvious reason is that cities are much larger than they were in the past. They're just, most people now live in cities. But another reason is that contemporary wars are fought by networks of state and non-state actors. And something that Saskia points to, the importance of global infrastructure. They need, they basically connect to each other through the digital world and through financial mechanisms. They're global as well as local. And so they need to be in cities in order to communicate with each other. Um, A second reason, I think, has very much to do with identity politics. Again, in the past, we used to think of cities as cosmopolitan places. Contemporary wars very much tend to be at least framed in identity politics terms. They're framed in terms of ethnic nationalism, tribalism, religious fundamentalism. Um, And what you see happening in cities is that because cities have got so large, you increasingly have a sort of identity-based division, a ghettoization of the city, partitions, uh, divisions. These are all the meat of what we describe in the book. And then a final reason really has to do with tactics. Um, I think 
you know, in the old days, we used to think of wars as clashes between two sides. Battle was the emblematic moment. But now increasingly, the violence is directed against civilians as a way of establishing political control. And um, as, uh, you know, as we point out, cities are very different from the past. They're actually no longer self-financing. They depend on state provision and therefore access to local state authorities is key for financing the wars and controlling local fiefdoms inside the cities involves this increasing violence against the cities. What we do in the book, and I won't go on now because I've answered it greater length, um, is to talk about how these aren't just local wars, they're global wars, and how the shape of international interventions really influences the nature of the violence. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting, and I, I appreciate what you've you, what you've raised about those risk factors and how this changing nature of warfare. Um, and and you've captured it all um, very brilliantly with the concept about how new the new wars and and how this complexity of contemporary warfare um, is impacting urban areas and and like you said underpinning this this um, complex interaction are some of the of the trends you've mentioned the population explosion the infrastructure question and the interconnectedness the identity tactics and and actors which I think is 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 important but. And and we've seen it. I mean, in, in, like you're saying, the book goes into um, quite a bit of detail. It gives us very rich cases of where we, where we begin to see this. But another very interesting concept, and and here I'll turn to Professor Sen, is you you utilize the the concept of urban capabilities um, in highlighting just how these potential urban spaces uh, possess the capacity to make. Uh, new subjects and, and identities. Um, maybe you want to touch a little bit on, on what you mean and how you define the urban um, capabilities. Um, well, it, in, in many ways, it comes out of a constraint, a limiting of, uh, so that what we see in, in cities, especially, you know, very, uh, especially large cities, I guess, but, and I would also add immediately that many European cities somehow are different, let's say, from the cities that you see in the Americas, whether Latin America and North America, or what you see in Asia. So Europe is very particular condition here, partly because you have such a very long history of multiple kingdoms, multiple wars. You know, it's, it's so different from other parts of the world. To me, that sort of is also a factor in play, even though we don't really um, put it forth, you know, as, as a main issue in, in the book, but but it, it does matter. Now, the second point is, of course, this whole notion of urban capabilities, that a city has speech. It does talk back. Now, it doesn't do that via its buildings exclusively. It does also do that via how it is built, how it changes its built structures, etc. But it also does it, of course, via the populations who live there. Very often, the populations who are in cities cannot imagine leaving the city. Leaving the city, where do they go? You know, it's, it's like a major challenge. That is not always the case, but certainly... In many situations, the city is the last place where the very poor can put down their bodies, even if it is on the street at night. So there is something in today's world, and I assume that we have had past periods where that was also the case, but in today's world, what stands out is this combination of the housing question, we all know what that is for shorthand, right? That that is an emergent issue that is happening in many places. Europe is a very protected continent in that regard compared to what is happening in the Americas, what is happening in certain Asian countries, what is happening in Africa. The housing question has risen again with, uh, with enormous significance and despair, of course. And when you say the housing question, you're already inviting the notion of something that is desperate, 
something that is not quite functioning, etc. So, so what what I saw in this amazing project, which is really Mary's project, uh, with all her team uh, of researchers, was this capturing, the capturing of a particular. Uh, syndrome, if you want, which is of course inevitably partial, eh? that that has to do with our current modernity, our current uh, deployment of all kinds of activities in cities, rather than let's say you know the wars of older days when you wanted a huge open field, uh, or or the ocean or the air, and, and it comes all sort of it sort of uh, grinds itself down into a whole variety of miseries and a whole variety of extraordinary interventions that can also happen. So it is a very ambiguous moment. We cannot simply celebrate our cities, our big cities, and say, oh, this is just great. There was a moment when we did, after World War II, rebuilding our cities in Europe uh, was a major event. It was it was invigorating. People loved it. It gave life. It gave new life, etc., etc. We can't quite speak about it today that way. And the reasons are multiple. Some of the reasons we list in the book, but there are also other reasons, which is the capture of much urban space by very powerful actors, because it is in cities and the networks that are engaged in cities, you know, among cities, uh, that, that a lot of this innovation is happening, both good and not so good, uh, slightly extractive modes very often that take away stuff where before you had a modest neighborhood that thought they had it more or less together. And yes, their shops were not the fanciest, but you know what, it all worked. Well, today the little shops are killed and some branch of a major firm moves in. Those are very destructive modes. So the city becomes... It's not the war zone as the traditional notion of war. It is another kind of, uh, you know, war that happens in there, which I think, and, and some of the research that I have done at least shows it very clearly, is that major firms, I mean, really powerful international firms, have now entered the business of buying up the buildings that are for modest income families. This is happening certainly in the Americas. Uh, Europe is always a bit more well-known. Actually, Saskia, uh, <laughs> you know, the reason for the high prices um, yeah. in London is yeah. precisely that, that these, uh, these buildings, you know, the really big and expensive buildings are being brought up by companies, by Russian oligarchs, by Syrian warlords, because it's a fantastic method of money laundering. No, but London is there. London and 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 the and the US are very special. But we have many, many, many cities in Europe, which are not yet. One might say, if one might be very prudent. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> I'm not there, but that is the threat. The threat is that uh, it becomes an object. And then, of course, if you look at the financializing of housing, I mean, it stops being seen as housing. It's just a bunch of assets that you can mm -hmm. buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. That is also a real threat to an older concept of ownership in the city. You know, where you had some dodgy landlords and some nice landlords that rented out, you know, that is sort of dying out a bit because other types of actors have entered. So one of the leading, I mean, absolutely leading financial firms, extraordinarily rich and powerful, who have bought up stretches of South America, you know, etc. They are now in the business of housing in a city like London, in New York, you know, in all the major cities. Really, they're operating in 17 different countries. That is one firm, a firm that presents itself as a financial firm. That is quite extraordinary. That is different in a way. But I agree completely with what Mary said, by the way. We're not disagreeing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and and it's interesting how you, when you're talking about the housing issue, um, it just occurred to me, while while I appreciate that the angling in the book is, is the intention is that you, you wanted to cover both sides of, of the spectrum, not only the militarization, the securitization, the war um, narratives, but also the spectrum about peace and 
Yeah. And it, it, it occurs to me that um, when you're talking about housing, in, in the case that um, conflict um, emerges and this urban spaces or the cities become engulfed in that um, conflict dynamics, then it seems it seems that um, it's actually quite a bit of strategic thinking on the on the part of this non-state um, armed actors because they will use the the, the cityscape as leverage. Um, in not only fi- like you're saying in financing, so the the, the economy of conflict, but also um, in 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 moving um, the battle space, like um, like Prof. Caldo said, away from the jungles and mountains into the cities. So they're increasingly um, adapting and crafting uh, this this um, the cities as the new frontiers um, of 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 the the contemporary warscape to a large degree, and and um, I think. In asking that, um, I don't want to get too much into detail because, I mean, I also want to entice the listeners to, to go and get themselves a copy of the book and just really dive into it because it's an it's a, it's an interesting read. But I'll just I'll just mention very quickly what 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 came or, or what struck me is so there's there's very rich examples here. There's Bamako, there's Kabul, there's Karachi, there's Ciudad Juarez, and there's Goma. And and I'm going to be a bit biased here because I'm I'm speaking from a very Afrocentric perspective. And and I think Bamako and Goma here, if I can use those as examples in launching into my next inquiry, is the the chapter on, on Bamako in Mali. I think is a very interesting case because it shows the remapping of the urban space mm-hmm. as a consequence of of the international uh, international intervention there, and how this uneven mapping of danger has created no-go zones and and safe zones, and and this also affects the interaction between the the interveners and the locals. So that's one one aspect, and the other one is Goma, which some I would argue is almost a marked marked um, contrast to the, the the Bamako situation, where Goma in the Eastern DRC has become almost the urban heart of, of violent conflict. But it's also become um, a variety, a zone where it's produced a variety of zones of protection. So this kind of refuge idea for, and a safe, a refuge idea for um, IDPs, mm-hmm. but also a safe, a safe haven for, for rebels. So I think that intersection is, is, is very interesting. And, and now I appreciate the argument, Professor, Sassen, that you're raising about the urban capabilities question. But um, what what I'd like Prof, Prof uh, Caldo maybe to build on a bit is um, the idea of just the intersection of uh, urbanization of warfare and how this intersects with the the global war on terror and the interventionism as espoused by the liberal uh, peace model. Just very very briefly on that, which I found very interesting. Yeah, well, I think that's the heart of the contrast between Bamako and Goma. Um, what I've tried to show is that, you know, people tend to think of security as a black box, but there are different ways of doing security. And I call it security cultures because there are ways that the kind of people you need, the kind of instruments that you use, and the geographies is also part of this. So I distinguish here between two kinds of security culture. One is the war on terror, which is being pursued by the United States and by, in the case of Mamako, by France, which is really the war of the manhunt, the attempt to find terrorists and kill them. And it uses drones and airstrikes, special forces, intelligence agencies, and Bamako is characterized by the war on terror, but not only the war on terror. The other security culture I talk about, I talk about several more, but I'm just mentioning two here, is the liberal peace, which is basically UN operations that tend to come in after a peace agreement has been signed. Peace agreements don't actually lead to the end of war nowadays. But what they signify is the deployment of an international presence that, you know, some people call a kind of assemblage, to use Saskia's language, of NGOs, of UN agencies, and so on. And there's quite a contrast between the liberal peace and the war on terror. Actually, in Bamako, both are present. 
but in Goma, it's only the liberal peace. I don't want to say that the liberal peace is okay because it's not. It's it's equally it, it has lots of problems, not quite as many as the war on terror. Um, in both cases, the international presence tends to live in uh, enclaves uh, protected by high walls and have rather little uh, contact with ordinary people. But at least in the case of the liberal peace, they are able to create certain protected havens, certain, they are able to assist in local peace building, which is what happens in Goma, whereas Bamako is overlaid by the war on terror and is much more dangerous and insecure. And that contrast we tried deliberately to bring out in the book. Actually, what's quite interesting is there are two cases in the book where there isn't any kind of international intervention or very marginal international intervention. One is Bogota in Colombia and the other is Novi Pesar in Serbia. And in Colombia, in, in Bogota, they really have tried, and Saskia can talk much more about this than me, to go for a city-based security policy based on building community, on infrastructure, on working with citizens, as well as policing, of course. Uh, in Novi Pazar, what's absolutely fascinating is that this is a Muslim city inside Serbia, and yet it has managed to resist the uh, wars that have been taking place all around it, and is a real example of urban capabilities and urban resistance. Um, and that's terribly important. And the, I mean, the implication of that is that cities in a way have to take responsibility for solving the problems of war as long as they're not overly complicated by global arrangements. Uh, and actually the argument that Saskia makes in some of her other work, that cities are the level at which we confront global problems, I think also applies to war. It's at the level of cities at least contemporary wars, that we can start solving some of the deep social, economic, uh, physical problems that are created by war. Uh, thank you, uh, Prof. Caldo. So before, before I even jump into the next um, <laughs> question about um, this nation-state bias that we see in the analysis of, of um, conflict and, and the analysis of, of um uh, sort of the, the the factors that lead to insecurity and destabilization. Um, something I just want to give um, Professor Sassen also a chance maybe to to touch on um, with what you were referring to earlier about uh, just to build on not only the concept of the the urban capabilities but um, maybe to 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 give a bit more substance to this idea of shifting that level of analysis from. Um, and, and here, um, maybe you can even correct my phrasing, but I would say we're increasingly seeing a shift from um, a focus on fragile states to the question of fragile cities and how, um, for instance, now urban capabilities, um, in addition to complementary to the notion of resilience, maybe can offer a window into into addressing this question of fragile cities. Um, Prof. Sassen, maybe a word or two on that? Yeah, well, I think that that uh, this concept of fragile cities is, I I am afraid, uh, uh, an increasingly significant one. I do think that we have entered a new epoch, and in a complex systems such as a city, uh, capturing that notion of we have entered a new a new period, if you want, is not easy. But I think. In my reading, uh, our big cities are beginning to show their limits. They are overwhelmed. Uh, a lot of people have been expelled from the land where they used to live, and so cities, especially you know, maybe not in the United States, which is a huge country, far too big, <laughs> in my reading, and so there always is some space where they can go. But there are many parts of the world where it's getting very crowded. Uh, for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, the, uh, often it's just land grabs. 
by very powerful actresses is also happening in, in Central America and in South America, so that that lower income people are reduced to very, very uh, shrinking, if you want, spaces where they can execute their projects, live their lives, grow their whatevers. So I do think in that, I repeat, that we have entered a new period. Something is different. Now, the beginnings of new periods, and I think Mary could bring in stuff that, about war in that sense, uh, it's not always easy to understand that something is profoundly unsettled. Because so much, if you think, especially in the case of cities, so much of it is cement, right? I mean, you don't see cement unsettled. The unsettlements happen at other levels. Uh, and one indicator, of course, is gentrification, you know, to mention a very simple one, that suddenly uh, places in a city, and I have seen that in several of the cities where I have lived in, cities that we thought of as being very modest sites, etc., are becoming sort of grand places, because where before you had five families, now you have one very wealthy family living, and they just transform that space. So, So it seems to me that Perhaps, Mary, uh, we should find a name uh, for this new epoch. It's marked by something. I think we get at it a bit in the book. Eh? Uh, but something is changing. And on the second point, which is to me a very positive point, is that our big cities have lost a lot of standing. They are simply seen as less important than they used to be. And you see the proliferation of of uh, of businesses that install themselves in smaller cities, cities that are more manageable than the New Yorks and the Londons. Well, London is far more reasonable, let's say, than New York City. Uh, so that is another. Now, I am not, you know, we don't have all the data. We It's the beginning of something. But my sense is that we see a, a new type of valuing of smaller cities. In the case of the United States, this often means the Midwest, where you have very advanced, um, I mean, where you have enterprises that are doing extraordinarily advanced work, uh, which now then invited to them, also to those same smaller cities, uh, sort of younger generations that are interested in, 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 in making innovations, etc., etc. So I would say that what we're witnessing is the decay of one urban systematicity, if you want, or mode of being urban, moving to another one. And that other one, I think, is marked by a proliferation of smaller cities that become significant actors in what are sort of major uh, uh, forms of knowledge and innovations, uh, both material and not so material. That is sort of one... One observation I would put out there. I think that's really interesting, Saskia. This is not on the topic of war, but on the topic of COVID. But it does occur to me that this pandemic may bring about some of the transformations that earlier war brought about. Um, but because what strikes me is the increasing use of Zoom and working at home means that more and more people are moving to smaller cities to live. And so I think what you suggest may really be a possibility. But I just wanted to add, before we go on to what I call following Ulrich Beck national, um, um, uh, methodological nationalism, I just wanted to add something about urban capabilities because we've talked about the yogurt run, but actually cities do require an infrastructure and they can only be kept going if citizens can act normally. And so actually, although we tend to think of cities as wars crisscrossed by armed groups, which they are, there are also citizens doing normal things and actually organizing to keep infrastructure going. And there's some incredible examples in Syria. I mean, we've talked about the yogurt run People are probably familiar with the white helmets that organized themselves as first responders. But also there's a group called the People of Aleppo who are basically engineers who wanted to keep Aleppo's electricity 
water mm-hmm. and oil uh, pipelines running. And they operated throughout the whole war. They had to negotiate with all sides because the electricity was controlled by the government area, the diesel oil was controlled by ISIS, and the um, water was controlled by Jabhat al-Nusra, an Islamist group that now has another name. And um, they gained the trust of all these groups. And actually, one of the really interesting things about Syria is that very often armed groups take hold of political authority, they seize the administrative building, they impose their reign with coercion, but then they find they can't do the basic things that need to be done and have to bring in the citizens who acquire a great deal of public legitimacy. And so this is the kind of process through which urban capabilities, as it were, bounce back even in the midst of a really horrible war, which is the case in Syria. But um, the cases that we have of Bogota and Novi Bazar are cases where, and even um, the case on the Mexican city, are cases where citizens have tried to develop their alternative approach to peace building. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that what, you, what you're saying about um, Syria and how we begin to think about um, not only how, so in addition to the yoga trend, also how in, in one aspect, although this, this might be a bit biased towards the state, but also um, observing also Libya, we see that in that context of um, in, enhanced destruction and, and of, of infrastructure and a lot of devastation, we see also the role that in the absence of a central authority, um, as we've seen, how municipalities came to play um, a very important role in ensuring that um, this continued service delivery to, to, to a lot of the Libyan population. And I think that's, a, that's also a very important point. It dovetails what, what you've just said. Um, Absolutely. Now, uh, I think Libya is a fascinating example of this. Yeah, and and also um I I um it's something that I I think I'd be interested in diving a bit more, but I'd be interested in borrowing that concept of the yoga trend and seeing how in Libya how Libya has managed maybe to maximize its own version of the the or Libyan cities have managed to maximize their own versions of the yoga trend quote unquote um in trying to also create um elements of of security and stability in in their local um spaces. Um, I think I just want to turn now to the other side of the equation, which is where we've seen a lot of um, scholarly and analytical focus, which is the the idea of the combat-centric, the military approaches to security in cities. Um, It seems to me that there's a need for conflict management and resolution efforts to go beyond the nation-state bias. That, that they need to really take into account the contemporary warfare and how these dynamics intersect with the cities. As, um, as, and this is how the LSE project concluded this research, that cities are increasingly becoming primary sites of state erosion and crisis along, uh, across much of the developing world. But do you, do you think that their efforts um, in place or ongoing to address this um, I'd say analytical and also capacity deficit of the mainstream architectures of peace and security, the UN or even regional peace and security architectures. Do you see any efforts um, to try and bring in this or understand and embrace this um, trend of urbanization of warfare? Well, I think you're absolutely right that uh, the external actors and the United Nations all focus on the national level. And the focus of international efforts is always to get a national level peace deal. And the problem with getting a national level peace deal is that in these contemporary wars, partly there are so many different armed actors, it's very difficult to get them around a table. And in fact, we have lots of cases in DRC where, where armed groups have actually been formed in order to be included in United Nations peace talks, because that's their way to get access to power. So there's a huge problem with the national level peace deal. Um, and 
part of the problem is local and part of the problem is global. And we get, I'll focus on the local, local, but just to say in many places, many of the groups that are involved are intrinsically linked to outside donors, outside powers. And unless you bring in, say in the case of Syria, you just have to involve Russia and Turkey and Israel uh, but not only those, the opposition groups are being funded by private donors in the Gulf. How do you deal with those private donors? So that's, um, so that's, so there's definitely a need to be regional um, as well as global, but there's also a need to be local or to be at the level of cities. I mean, one of the extraordinary features of contemporary wars, and this is something that we've been counting at the London School of Economics, is that they are characterized by a growing number of local peace agreements. Now, that may be that we didn't used to count them before, and now they're being counted. But certainly the new figures that are coming out of the Uppsala Conflict Research Programme and our own work, is that there's a huge increase in local level peace agreements. Now, these aren't necessarily good agreements. They may be agreements between warring parties, exchange of services. They may be tactical agreements <clears throat> to gain an advantage. They may be surrenders. But some of them, where there are more citizens involved, are actually quite significant. And the key to these agreements is they need to link up to all levels. It's quite important that the United Nations Special Representative has a mandate to deal with cities as well as the national level negotiations. Mm -hmm. And it's important that there can be capabilities promised. We have one fascinating case uh, at LSE of the town of Galkayo in Somalia where a peace agreement was reached in 2018 uh, with considerable involvement of the UN, but also a very activist approach by the UN um, representative at the local level, who was herself a Somali. Um, the involvement of trades unions, citizens groups made a huge difference. So I think you can point to a few places where there have been attempts but it's still not in the mandate. It still hasn't gone far enough. But I think there are possibilities for moving in that direction, although, of course, the UN has to contend with, on the one hand, the continuation of the war on terror, and on the other hand, the increasingly geopolitical uh, competition taking place uh, between the great powers. Uh, if I can comment, I completely agree with what... Mary said, and sort of for me, one question that I'm sort of exploring is whether nation states, that formation that is the nation state, which after all encompasses so much, so many very, very different elements, whether that is actually really decaying. And at, at that point, and one sort of emergent little factor that would illustrate that is the rise of the importance of cities rather than the nation state. Now, certain mm. states are little, neat, and they can keep it all together, like, you know, Switzerland. But other nation states, like the United States, are a mess. The, the, the inequalities are extraordinary within cities and across cities. And so to me, there is also sort of an, a, a sense that this national state formation, which has worked rather well for quite a long time, is now a weakened element. It's still there, formally speaking, you know, it's all there. But when you look at what is actually mobilizing new trends, what are emergent conditions, then you see that it is particular lo localizations that are far more important, I think, than this bigger notion of the nation state. Now, there are tiny nation states the Netherlands, where I was born, which are, which are doing very, very well. But they're also part of a very well-organized uh, European, uh, you know, setting, where many other such countries are also doing very well. When you look at the Americas, you begin to see 
a very serious decay of what once sort of worked okay, never perfect. And, and that to me is also an interesting question. We might actually be confronting an epoch when you have diverse modalities and you can no longer, when you're analyzing different types of countries, just assume that, you know, the nation state is the the, the format, the, the dominant format, and that is what you need to look at if you're going to understand a country. I think, on the contrary, we also have to, that of course still counts, but we still also have to bring in these transversal connections that are just multiplying, that cut across with great ease, moreover, uh, different nation states. And so the nation state, to me, is the one who is in real trouble, though it is a trouble that might produce some very positive outcomes. Huh? Uh, because, for instance, war is simply less important to cities than it is to the nation state, right? And so to what extent might be we actually witnessing the emergence of sort of a new, a new systematicity is one way of using it, because the barriers, you know, the designations, all of that can still happening, be part of it. But, but at the same time, a transformation is also in play. And so then at that point, it is really a collection of cities, and it's a big number of cities, and some of them are very, very powerful cities and others not so powerful, that is actually right now creating the new tissue through which the world partly, and I emphasize partly, uh, operates. And we haven't quite put the language to it that we should. We are still stuck with some old designations, nation, state, cities. You know, is there another designation that we need to actually get to in order to capture this, which is a partial phenomenon, but I'm describing as a partial phenomenon, that I think it is emergent. Yeah, and and it's interesting that you say that because as you were speaking, the, the the city, especially in this this in the, in the duration of this year that we've seen, um, speaking to a lot of the intersections of what you you were saying is Hong Kong, um, yeah. and and the kind the kind of um, not only debate but the kind of very interlinked um, relations, not only internationally the geopolitical questions the questions about power relations that Hong Kong um, evokes um, and, and the kind of, of, and how China is also using it or weaponizing it in, in, in the fault lines geopolitically that we are seeing in a very um, fragmented um, geopolitical landscape. So I think that's interesting and it, it builds on to, to what you are saying. And, and, um, I just want to shift to to another dimension. So we've talked about the the military element and the fact that um, the UN also is is in need of updating um, its, its assessment um, of of um, the peace and security approaches, particularly as far as um, cities are concerned, and 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 this trend how it's impacting its approaches to conflict management, but also, and I think for, for a lot of Western governments and Western military strategists, we begin to see a movement towards, um, doct doctrinal movement towards military operations in urbanized terrain, um, which is which is um, starting to, to become a primary subject of conversations in, in, in military headquarters. Here we've seen the movement in, a lot of it is in the global north. Uh, but, Turning away from that focus, a very dominant focus on the state and on the on, on the military um, actors, I think I want to shift it now to the other side of it, which are the humanitarian and the development actors. And we've seen the impact that explosive weapons have, um, the kind of wide area effects that they have in populated areas. Um, what what aircraft bombs and missiles and drones um, and and IEDs do, the, the kind of devastation and damage that they cause. But what, what then does this um, urbanization of warfare mean for international humanitarian law and, and the implications that it has for humanitarian and development um, responses to, to this crisis? Gosh, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> but of course, one of the problems is that humanitarian law sort of doesn't really work any longer. Um, 
because the whole point of humanitarian law was that it's legitimate to kill combatants uh, and you have to protect civilians. But in a situation where civilians are the targets of violence and where it's very difficult to distinguish between civilians and combatants, it's really hard to apply hum international humanitarian law. Everything is a violation of international humanitarian law in contemporary wars. And it's actually quite shocking the way we've seen the deliberate bombing of hospitals and schools. Uh, on the other hand, what we have seen is the development of human rights law. And the great advantage of human rights law over humanitarian law is that if the right to life is absolutely central, which means international humanitarian law permits you to kill soldiers. It permits you to kill young men. Human rights law doesn't. And so I think it's very important that we move towards human rights law. Now, how does that affect humanitarianism and development? Well, humanitarian, I think there are two issues here. One is, uh, how do you create humanitarian space? The old idea of humanitarianism was that you were helping the civilians and that you negotiate with the two sides to create space through which you can provide humanitarian aid to civilians. But that space has just completely disappeared since the civilians are the people being killed. And so actually, and this has raised this whole question of humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect because surely the task of humanitarianism now is to create safe spaces, to create humanitarian space. But I think there's a further problem, which is that these are very long running wars in which humanitarian assistance, which was supposed to be emergency assistance in wars, has become a permanent feature of everyday life. And it's become intertwined in the war economy. Most donors need to find local partners to deliver humanitarian aid. And often these local partners are somehow also engaged in war and criminal activities. Mm. And so a large proportion of humanitarian aid gets sucked into the war economy. And because of the war, young men, well, women too, have no jobs. They have no legitimate forms of livelihood. So they have very little choice but to join a criminal gang, become a militia man, or to live on humanitarian aid. So even in the midst of war, it's terribly important to try to think about how you can create uh, space, not just for people to be safe in, but for people to create an alternative, productive, value-adding economy. And all of these things somehow have to happen simultaneously, but I think it's much easier to do that. And here I bring us back to our beginning at the level of the city. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. I also uh, uh, think that what Mary just said about how cities are in play, uh, that's really, it, it really demands, we need to produce more knowledge about this because most People who are looking at war are not necessarily that focused on the inside of the city. They may be focused on how a city gets destroyed, you know, if it gets destroyed. But not the, what it means for the people who keep on living in those cities, because those are the places where they live, and they are often the only places where they can live. And so there is a, there is a bit of a void, Mary, and the way you manage, because you've done so much work on the war side, you manage to see something about this, how this gets constituted, how warship, so to speak, gets constituted in an urban setting where it is dressed in other clothing, so to say. Um, I, I think that this is something we should really uh, put a paper out on that, that just focuses on that aspect because it really is, it really is important. Um, mm. When you think of the old wars, you know, the, the famous wars after World War II, the big spaces were involved, you know, the the oceans, the, the skies. And then, of course, the few cities got destroyed. But look what the big deal we that was Dresden, completely destroyed, right? Today, it, it, 
it's just a different combination of elements. I think these are different wars from what is in the memory of many of us still the biggest war, which are the World War II wars. Uh, and yet, you know, and, and so how do we capture, I mean, you, you just said throughout this conversation, Mary, you brought up a lot of elements that I think they're part, they have long been part of your work that sort of could really be put up front in a way to capture this very specific mode that is also present and is growing and that it is and that cities become one site in major cities perhaps only in them but i'm not sure of that because we also dealt with very small cities you know how to capture this this emergent transformation for which we don't quite have a name maybe you have in the meantime figured out a good name for it but um, well we've been talking about actually <laughs> you will be pleased because we took it directly from your work the disassembly <laughs> of the state aha uh-huh. oh yeah right that is one of my favorites <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Between the the yogurt run and this, we're on happy ground for me, analytically speaking, clearly. Exactly. <laughs> and and if and if you put so as a, as as we just wrap up, um, so if you put on your policy advice um hats and and here I want to to rein it in because. Um, we 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 particularly designed also this this podcast to also reach out to policymakers or decision makers, um, and 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 I think here yeah, the global south is important because we can't be caught in a, in a state of play where we are constantly playing catch up. The idea is to be pragmatic, to look ahead and say, look, um, this urbanization of warfare is a trend that's happening now. Um, it's coming up. Um, let's not get, let's not have a knee-jerk reaction to it. So, and and in, in sub-Saharan Africa, as you can imagine, it's where we see most clearly the intersection of this of this risk factors. So the the fact that um, sub-Saharan Africa is facing um, population explosion, one of the world's um, most accelerated urban population growth rates, highest population of urban um, dwellers living in slums. Um, more than any other region or sub-region. And at the same time, also sub-Saharan Africa is where there's, there's the largest concentration of um, UN, majority of UN peacekeeping missions are here. Um, we see a lot of the, the hotspots and, and the, the, the flashpoints um, around um, war, peace, um, war and, sec- and uh, insecurity also emerging here in, 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 in Africa. So what what would you say is... Um, your policy advice out there at this moment, just as an action point um, in, in finalization to to any policymaker or decision maker listening to Earth? Uh, well, I think what I would say is that it's really important to focus on the level of the city while not losing the focus on the national because they're totally interconnected. You can't just have a peace agreement in the city without having links to the national and the national can pull it apart. So first I'd say a focus on the city. But secondly, I think I would say what's incredibly important is what I would call civic inclusion. Um, You know, there's a tendency to focus on dealing with the armed groups uh, because they're the people who have to stop the violence. But actually, I think it's what we find, the people who carry out the urban capabilities, the farmer who produces the yogurt in Eastern Ghouta that we started talking about, those are the people who can really understand the local politics, how the armed groups function, how the war functions. Those are the people with a real stake in peace. And usually the international community like those people. They say they're nice, we'll give them money but they don't regard them as partners. And I think that's absolutely critical, is involving those people who represent urban capabilities as partners in a peacemaking process. Um, Shall I add something? I completely agree with what Mary said. I just want to bring in a couple of elements that we should probably begin to examine more carefully and mention more frequently, which is 
stuff that has to do with the destruction of land and water bodies and what that means, what are the consequences of that for people? Certainly one consequence is that more and more people wind up in cities. What we see in the Americas, for instance, the big cities, they are, they are at the edges. They are simply hell. Those are, they live on land where there is no water, there is nothing. They have to, like Brazil is a very good example, some of the major cities in Brazil. So it's this whole other world which uh, is getting shaped by the fact that so many people have been expelled from their land, you know, in many diverse formats, diverse conditions, etc. And of course, they, what, what has entered in are big international firms that are basically extracting the value from that land. And when they are done, they leave. And the land is dead. They just killed it. And so this to me is also an, an, a condition that, uh, that requires more of our attention because at some point the curve is going to get negative and is going to hit more and more people who are now also living in cities. The, the extent to which we are destroying land and water bodies is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, we've entered a whole new era <laughs> uh, that we could really label under that term. Ah, this was the epoch when they started to really seriously destroy water and land. That is sort of an image that I want to put out there also. Me, the urbanist, mind you. Huh? Yeah, um, thank you so much, um, ladies. I think we've had such a fascinating discussion and you've given um, us and the listeners so much food for uh, thought. I just want to reiterate and ask um, also the, the listeners um, to also take a step further um, get a copy of the book and really get into um, the details of just some of the what we've touched um, in this discussion. Um, thank you so much, Prof. Um, Sassen. Thank you, Prof. Caldo, for your time. Um, and uh, I also want to encourage listeners to share the, the podcast generally. Um, and uh, let's take this conversation um, further and, and carry on the, the research agenda. So uh, thank you to both of you. Thank you to you.